Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study, the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Over the past um, couple of weeks as we've been looking into March, G- Mark, uh, Jesus has walked with his apostles. They've gone way, way, way north, farther north than any of these guys have ever gone in their lives. They've gone to Caesarea Philippi. And all the way up north, Jesus has taken them through encounters where they meet people, engage with people, see Jesus ministering to, talking to, healing people that normally these good Galilean and Nazarene um, apostles of his would just not have had any contact with. And they were continually challenged to open their hearts, open their minds, open their love for people that are different from themselves. This is going to continue, but now Jesus is really bringing it to a point. So as we read through the the passage today, uh, as you follow on the screen or here or or just follow in your own device, um, what what you're going to be hearing is the apostles, um, they are bewildered, they're amazed, they're astonished, they're trying to figure out what's going on. All of this seems so strange and foreign to what they had expected, yet where Jesus is taking it. So Mark chapter 27 I'll remind you now, Jesus has just finished the interaction with the rich young ruler. And uh, he's made that comment as he turns to the children that are gathered around him. And he says, children, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What are you talking about? And so there's this amazement and this bewilderment that happens. So here we go. Looking at them, Jesus said, with a man, it is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now, at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers, children, field with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Then they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And he will rise again after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Don't you love that kind of a question? Hey, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus uh, uh, patiently asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup? I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. 
We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink of the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit in my right or left hand is not for me to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so three ways we're going to engage this today. We're going to talk about this value system reboot that Jesus is challenging his, his disciples and his apostles, the followers there. Um, helping them understand rewards and prosperity are not the motivation he wants us, them, us to pursue. Secondly, um, the assumptions of the apostles and the disciples as they approach to Jerusalem, we need to look at what those assumptions are because honestly, if you don't understand what's going through their mind, then we kind of read our culture into the text and that would be a mistake because their culture is genuinely germane at this point. So we want to understand it. And then if we have time, which if I can see the clock, no, no way we're going to get to this, but we'll try. Um, uh, blind Barnabas gets his sight. So we'll see uh, if we get there today. Probably not, but that's okay. Famously in our world, uh, really over the last hundred years, and to some extent uh, this still goes on today, if you were to go to India, you would encounter uh, a caste system. The caste system um, isn't, of course, as dramatic as it used to be. Things have balanced a lot of ways in that economy. But it used to be, and, and still is to some extent, that there are these vast areas of people who are stuck in a caste, and that's just where you are your entire life. And you know your place in society by where you are in your caste. Familiar with these caste systems? Uh, there's the untouchables, the sudra, the vashya, the other words I can't pronounce. And so as you go through, you go through these systems, people kind of know where they belong, and you're stuck in that. You can't get out of that system. When Kim and I were missionaries, uh, our partnership missionaries in Brazil, um, what we encountered was a system that was very similar to this, and it's the reason that our teams were going down and building the schools in uh, Campo Grande, Brazil, right in the middle of the nation, because what would happen is if you couldn't get through primary school, you couldn't get into secondary school. School's free, but you got to make it from one level to the next. And if you can't make it, if you're not good enough to make it into the next level, you're forever stuck in kind of that strata in society. You can't get beyond it. And so what our teams were there to do was to build schools or parochial schools. The Assemblies of God and the Baptists were working together. I know, right? Uh, and, and we were working together in, in, these, in these school situations so that um, kids could go to the school the school would give them uniforms, feed them their lunches, give them an opportunity to learn so that they could make it to the next level, the next level, the next level. And if the kids could just make it to the collegiate level, which is paid for by the state if you qualify, those kids would have an opportunity to have real job and real opportunity. And so they could break out of a locked caste system. Kind of, you understand how that works now? Okay, if you can take this structure and you can transfer your mind back to the ancient world where Jesus is talking to his apostles, his disciples, his followers, there was a pretty strict structure in their world in that day. And they understood who you could talk to and who you couldn't. That strata in his world, much like the strata in our world, uh, was determined by some things like uh, wealth and prosperity and uh, who was a slave, who was in poverty, physical, mental challenges, uh, power, nobility, race, ethnicity, tribe, name, skill, all these different things kind of put you where you belong. 
And these disciples and apostles of Jesus, these followers, had a really tight understanding of who you talk to and who you don't, who's worthy, who's not, which is funny, really, haha, when you think about the apostles themselves, a former tax collector, uh, a doctor, <laughs> uh, a, a zealot, uh, th- these people, uh, uh, a finance guy, you know, the CFO, uh, all these people that made up Jesus' apostles, fishermen, these are completely opposite of one another. They're diverse at every level. And so Jesus is trying to demonstrate through his travels, and as we get to this point today, these ideas we've set up about who is greatest and who is least, who belongs and who doesn't, who's the good, who's the common, who's the better, who's the best. None of those systems align with God's way of doing things. Jesus' term for God's way of doing things is, good morning, the kingdom of heaven. He started several of his parables like this, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's his way of saying God's way of doing things is the kingdom of heaven. So God's way of doing things is different than mankind's. And these ideas that we have, this social strata, who's the best, who's the least, these ideas are human and they don't align with God's way of doing things. So, Jesus is challenging directly and intentionally the apostles, the disciples' understanding and assumptions about what the messianic kingdom is going to be. That's what this whole trip has been about. And you can almost imagine from time to time Jesus getting right in their faces and saying, Guys, listen, the first are going to be last. The last are going to be first. See, over here in the passage we read today, really, he calls them aside and he, and, and he makes that comment to them. And it's almost like those of you who are parents, when you correct your children, you need to get their attention. It's not necessarily a punish moment, but you kind of say, come here, look me right here. Do not do this. Or, or, or are you listening to me? Are you hearing me right now? Shut everything out. Listen to me right here. You will do your homework before you have pizza and a movie. Are we clear? Uh huh. This is one of those moments of Jesus saying, Hey, tss, tss, listen, listen, listen. Those of you who are going to follow me and want to be first in my kingdom, it's going to cost you because the first will be last and the last are going to be first. And if you will be first in my kingdom, then you're going to be a servant to all others because that's how it is in God's kingdom. Astonished, amazed, perplexed. How can this be? But all along this path, all along this time where they're becoming amazed and astonished, they are on their way to Jerusalem, the center of the messianic prophecy, as well as the lair of all those who wanted to kill Jesus and his followers. Liar. It's not supposed to say liar. It's supposed to say lair up there. Hmm, I misspelled that. So as they're, as they're going their way to Jerusalem, the apostles, the disciples are continually perplexed. Here's where that perplexion comes from. They're thinking Messiah, the one they've been waiting for since Isaiah, the one who is going to come and free Israel. They have ideas in their head of of the Messiah coming with a great sword and entering on a white horse and establishing his kingdom and kicking out the Romans and and Herod will be gone now and and the Messiah will sit on the throne and the temple will be pure and restored and all these things are going to be the perfect Jewish state, Zionism as it were, right? This is what they're all expecting. And Jesus is not living up to the expectations that they have. 
So on this trip, there are hundreds of people who were gathered to follow him at this point. Hundreds, not just 12. Not just 12. The apostles are the 12. It's why Scripture is continually, Mark is continually trying to get you to understand disciples, apostles. Disciples are following him, apostles, the 12. And Mark continually makes that distinction because that's what Peter had told Mark. Make sure that that distinction is clear. There were hundreds who followed. There were 12 who stayed along and 11 who finished the race. As, as we get to this point, though, they're going up this hill to Jerusalem, and our mind has to travel back now. How did we get here? Why is it astonishing to them? Well, it's astonishing for several reasons, but let's walk the path that they've been walking with Jesus for a little while. Back in Mark chapter 2, um, when, when Jesus uh, met with the, the blind man and, and the cripple, and he healed him, and he told him, your sins are forgiven. Who who can forgive sins but God? Remember when he calls Matthew and he says, leave all this behind and come to follow me. And Matthew makes a calculated decision. He puts down what he's doing, stops being a traitor to his people and follows Jesus, gives up all. When Jesus heals the man at the pool and, and, and the guy is healed, who can heal but the Son of God? Who could possibly do this but God himself? And what Jesus would tell him over and over is, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And as Jesus walks along the path with these disciples who are following him, they're kind of like, what? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this that he can heal the sick? And as Jesus is teaching them and walking with them, they make their way to Jerusalem. And this is back in Mark um, chapter 5. Jesus is in the, uh, in the temple there, and the, the Jewish rabbis and the Sanhedrin and the priests are all around him. They want to challenge him, but who do you think you are? Uh, telling people their sins are forgiven. Only God can, can forgive people of their sin. You will answer for this. So they call him into a, a court of sorts. And in Mark chapter 5, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, we read about this. Jesus finds his way into this group of people, and they bring before him a man who has a withered hand. In other words, his hand doesn't work. He can't do a day's work. Okay? You, you tracking with me so far? As Americans, we would think, okay, well, he's under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and so you can't discriminate against him. He still gets a job, and, and maybe he's left-handed, and so he could work with this hand, and, and we would expect just a little bit less, but we would pay him the same because that's equitable and fair, and that's a wonderful American ideal. This is the ancient Near East. That is not their ideal. Their ideal is this. Your hand is withered somehow because you're a sinner. There's something wrong in your life that's made God judge you. Therefore, we judge you too, and we condemn you while we're at it. You can't marry, you can't own property, you're not supposed to be in the temple itself because you're defiled. And uh, so we'll look at this person with contempt, and we'll give them enough alms to stay alive, but we don't trust them because clearly there's something wrong with them. Can you get your mind around that? Kind of ick, isn't it? But if you get your mind around that, that's how they're thinking. So they bring this guy, they parade him, as it were, out in front of Jesus in the temple. Good for this guy because he's never been there before. He's kind of like, wow, this is pretty cool. Look at all this. I had no idea. they had. And so they bring him in, and Jesus heals the man right there in front of him. And they go, how dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? That was work. <laughs> Jesus is like, okay, um, you're morons. And uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And shame on you is the underlying message. Because here this person is healed. Folks, where better than to find healing than in the house of God? Where better to be restored? Where better to begin a new life 
free of the things that have caused people around you to say sinner, not as good, things are wrong with you. How much better is it to come into the house of God, to the people of God, and leave those things behind? You see, that's what's happening there. And Jesus is trying to tell them that's what the Sabbath is all about. That's what being set aside is all about. That's what the Son of Man came to do, was to heal. So this is the message um, that, that Jesus is trying to get across to him. that your astonishment, by, by the way, let me back up. Their astonishment is, why on earth does he keep doing these amazing things and then hanging out with the poor? Why does he keep doing these messianic prophecy fulfillments, yet go hang out with a Gentile woman at a well uh, and, and make it hard for us to explain. Why does he go and feed 5,000 people here and 4,000 here and 12,000? Why does he continue to do that and then preach messages that, that separate those crowds from him? Why does he keep to do that? Why are they amazed? The, the amazement really is coming from this. He keeps preaching what we call space maker sermons uh, just as the crowds are getting big. Um, the, stop there for just a second. Have you ever been in a church where it's really gotten large and really got like, okay, second service, it's packed, right? There's, there's no seats and uh, things are really full and it's exciting and it's energetic. When things like that happen, um, it is the tendency of pastors, preachers, church leaders, elders, others to don't rock the boat. Things are going really good. Let's not say anything that might make people think, oh, I'm not sure I can go to this church anymore because things are really good. That tendency exists, right? And so every once in a while, uh, it's important. When, when churches get large, uh, that pastors are sure to make sure we're clear on some of the fundamentals of the gospel and some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith and what we believe. And a lot of times when you take stands on matters, it creates space because suddenly folks go, oh, I just don't think I can be a part of a church that does that. I mean, after all, the church is here to serve me and to do for me, and i got to come to the church, and i got to like it, and i got to like everything about it, and the stage has got to be right, and the preacher's got to wear the right suit and preach out of the right Bible, and, and, and it's, it's, it, people have got to be friendly for me, and the coffee's got to be great, and the chairs have got to be comfortable, and the parking's got to be fantastic. Are we tracking here? And so we go and we expect the church to serve us. I know there's probably first-time visitors here today going, yeah, that's exactly what's on our checklist. i got it right here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not picking at you necessarily, but oh yeah, I am, sure I am, sure. And so, and so pastors will get real careful that they don't want to say anything that would alienate folks, like the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God, and it really is the solitary source of truth, and if you do not build your life and your faith around what the Bible teaches about Jesus, then you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven or into eternal life with Christ. If you said that in some churches, people would go, oh. Well, that's not peaceful. I believe in coexistence. I think that the Muslims are going to heaven too because God who loves would love all people and all paths lead to God. And so if a pastor stands up and says that is not the truth, in fact, our hearts must burn and be burdened for those who don't believe the truth of the gospel because apart from Jesus, there is no salvation because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's a dividing mark. And sometimes that will be a divider, a sword that, that separates people, separates sheep from goats, and people won't want to go to that church anymore, right? So that's just in our day. Imagine Jesus continues to do things like feeds Gentiles. He, he feeds the Jews over here at this, the feeding of the 5,000, which was really plus their families, 12,000, 15,000. And then he goes over here to Gergesa and he feeds the, the Gentiles too. And the Jews are like, well, how dare you? They're not as good as us. 
You know, we're not following you anymore. We're going to go follow that other church. I like their seats better anyway. And so, so th- this happens continually. Jesus makes these space makers. So that's one of the reasons that they're astonished. You keep, you keep uh, heading to Jerusalem, but you have no army. You're supposed to be the Messiah. We're supposed to be the Messiah's followers, but there's no army here. We don't have any swords. We don't have great horses and chariots. How are you going to be a Messiah? So they're amazed. They're astonished. They're perplexed along this path. And thirdly, the whole nature of this coming kingdom is bewilderingly other than what they are expecting of this Messiah. And it keeps getting stranger by the day. What do you mean the last will be first and the first will be last and the follow me you need to be like slaves? But above all, above all of it, the reason the apostles are perplexed the reason the disciples are fading away and, and can't quite figure out what's going on on this great trip to Jerusalem is that all along the way, Jesus keeps predicting His death. This will be the third time now as we get to this point in Mark. Uh, as we get right here to, um, the, let's see, we're in the 10th chapter starting in the 32nd verse. Jesus is going to predict His death again. Now, this is time number three. The first time He predicted His death, and it's Peter. It's right after He had said, uh, He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. Way to go, little rock guy. Uh, little rock, you're the, you're, the truth that you just stated is the very big rock that my church is going to be built on. Way to be a positive pebble, you know? And so he even calls him positive pebble. And we say Peter, that's his new name. And so he, he goes from being Simon to positive pebble. And now he's the leader and, and he feels really good about this. And he's feeling pretty bloated because he says something good. And Jesus says, I'll be betrayed and the Son of Man will be handed up to be executed. And Peter says, no, I'll never betray you, Lord. And by the way, don't ever say things like that again. You're going to scare people off. And so Jesus rebukes him. Look, fool, (laughs) Uh, I am God, you are not. And this is how it's going to go, and you will not rebuke me. Get thee behind me, Satan. What you're saying isn't your own ideas. It comes from Lucifer. Wow. So at this moment, which is high and low, high and low, Jesus has has spoken truth, but they're confused because they're thinking of Messiah one way. Um, The following following message that Jesus is teaching him after this first prediction um, really has to do with that they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Him. And remember, He does this while they're up north in Caesarea Philippi where people are being crucified by the dozens around the courts of the, of the king up there. So the second time Jesus will predict His death, um, this is going to be in the ninth chapter. Uh, he says that He'll be delivered, He'll be killed, and He'll rise again after three days. The response there on the disciples' part is that they are completely bewildered again. Um, and, and, but they're afraid to talk to him about it. I don't, I don't, why, does he, why does he say it's the second time he said that? I don't get it. I don't get it. And he continues to teach that, um, that, the, that the first will be last and that the, they need to receive the children, receive unto him. And Jesus teaches more and more and more, your ideas of what my kingship look like are off base. This is what it looks like. And now the third time he's going to predict his, predict his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's also going to talk about being flogged and spit on and killed by Gentiles. And they're thinking, you're the Messiah. What are you talking about? We're on the road to Jerusalem on this messianic entry, and you say things like this. But the response this time is really, really fascinating. James and John, okay, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, the two of the three that were the closest, remember there's Peter, James, and John, always the closest right there. Peter at this point seems to have learned the lesson to some extent, just be quiet for a minute. Uh, but James and John are going to jump right in there 
and they're going to say, when you come into your kingdom, Messiah, we would like to sit on your right and your left. Now, in your minds, I want you to travel back with me when we were talking about strata. Remember? In that strata situation, these apostles, these two apostles, are thinking, we want to make sure we're at the top. We want to be on the right and the left, the closest to Jesus in all of his decisions. In this messianic kingdom, we want to be the closest to him, even though they understand that that means he's going to be kicked, spit, uh, brutalized, executed by Gentiles, and rise again on the third day. They're saying, we want to be right there with you. And Jesus says, are you sure? Are you sure you want to drink the cup that I drink? Are you sure that's what you want to do? And they're saying, yes, we want to be right next to you in this. I think James and John get it. I personally think that uh, some of the uh, perceptions that people have had over the years that they're being uh, selfish or self-righteous or seeking positions of authority, exactly like the other apostles were thinking, I would, I would submit to you that maybe James and John were getting it at this point, And they were saying, Lord, you are Lord. And even if it means everything, we want to be at your right and your left. We want to lead and serve alongside of you. And Jesus takes this opportunity to turn now and teaches that to be great, you must become servants. To be first, you must be last. To be the greatest, you must be the least. And that the Son of Man had come to give His life as a ransom for many. This is an astonishing moment. Three predictions of His death have taken place at this point. Friends, there's no way you could be a follower of Jesus and not be confronted with this reality. To be a follower of Jesus will cost you something. Jesus is going to... How's my time looking? Let me get over here. I think we're okay. Jesus is trying very hard to get these guys to, to understand what it means to be his follower. 2,000 years later, pastors are still trying to get people to hear the words of Jesus and understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. The first will be last. Those of you who would be leaders, those of you who would be respected here in this body and the church of Jesus in general across, across the world are those who are going to be servants to others. Great leaders are great servants. Great church leaders are people who understand that they give of themselves and they give of the talents God's given to serve other people. And that's exactly what Christ has called us to do. A couple of passages as we prepare to close today. Um, reading from uh, Matthew 10, 34 to 7, Jesus, 37, Jesus says this to uh, the apostles that are following. By the way, this is, this is a parallel verse in time to where Mark is, is talking. Jesus said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her father-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That passage really is perplexing for a lot of people because they think, wait a minute, doesn't Isaiah call Jesus the Prince of Peace? Isn't that what the angel said? Peace be upon you. Don't be afraid. The peace that Jesus came to bring is peace with God. Peace with God. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We understand throughout Scripture that Jesus came so that we could be at peace with God. That's what the gospel is about. But that peace that we have with Jesus and with God means that people on earth whose value systems are not aligned with the king's value system, the kingdom of heaven, are going to be at enmity, at odds with those of us who are following Jesus. Even in 21st century America, when we make our decisions and our value systems based upon what God calls us to do, what the Bible speaks of as true and right. When we do those things, the value systems and the people who follow who are opposed to Jesus will be at enmity with us, and it's a clash. And so what the gospel does, that Jesus defines it as a sword, a better translation uh, in, in our language to understand what they were hearing would be to say a paring knife, right, cooks? I've come to bring a paring knife to separate meat from bone, to separate the good from the bad, and to make a fine filet. Jesus is saying, I've come to separate the sheep from the goats. I've come to separate. I'm bringing peace, but that peace is with God. And that's the peace that passes all understanding and lasts forever. So church, we the church must be at peace in this body at peace with other Christian brothers and sisters of other denominations and stripes and takes on the Bible. We need to be people of peace, and the world around us needs to see that peace. But don't be fooled like the apostles. Don't be amazed. Don't be astonished. Don't be stunned when people hate you for loving Jesus. When the Christian church says, to love me is not to love money, to, to love Jesus completely, it means that there are some things that our culture says are right that we have to say, no, they're not. They're inconsistent with the Scripture. I love you, but on this matter, you are wrong and the Scripture is right, and we will not yield on this matter. That's a dividing point. And the astonished, amazed apostles are walking to Jerusalem bewildered that Jesus won't just acquiesce to the crowds and keep the big crowds around him. Our worship team is going to make their way back up um, here in just a minute. Or, or now, come on up, guys. And, and as they're doing that, and as they begin to, pl uh, to, um, to play, there's a question that we're going we're gonna to engage today. That question in our, in our subject for prayer is really this. What is it that I am expecting from Jesus? Let's track back to the beginning. Where do we figure we fall in this kingdom value, social strata of God's system if we're good Jesus followers? What do we think that means for us? Do we wrongly, as James and John may have been saying, think, hey, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I get money and prosperity and health and everything comes my way and everything is happy. Everybody likes me and everybody's at peace and, and I'll never get sick and I'll never have the withered hand. Is that what Jesus is saying the kingdom is like? Or is Jesus, the expectations we should have of Jesus would be that we are at peace with God. And then the gifts, talents, time, and treasure that God has given me, I use to serve others. And what I can expect is that by being a follower of Jesus from time to time, it's going to cost me something. And I can get sick just like everybody else. I may never be wealthy in that strata of society. Or maybe I am wealthy in that strata of society. But all of that is irrelevant because the thing that matters most is that I'm a servant to others. What are we expecting from Jesus? 
Do we come to Jesus so we can get something? Or do we come to Jesus so we can lay our lives down in gratitude and in honor of the Christ who gave his life for us? Team, go ahead and begin to play. Here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to close your eyes. Just bow your heads. Get alone with God for just a minute where you are. Don't worry about the people next to you, in front of you, behind you. Just get alone with God for just a minute. And let's engage that. What am I expecting from Jesus? The apostles were certainly expecting something. A lot of them were wrong. But how about you? Those who come to Jesus find themselves in a place of repentance and in a place of peace with God, a restored relationship with our Creator. You see, that's the high value, friends. Father God, in this moment, we are really just asking that you would give us a heavenly perspective, a clarity, an honesty about this Christian life that we're living. Father God, I know that many of us have to be a little ashamed right now. Because if we're honest, just like the apostles maybe were doing, we're thinking, by following Jesus, it, it gets me something. Lord, would you help our perspectives be honest as we come before you, as we kneel before you and recognize that we're helpless. We're sinners. And the only thing we have the right to ask to receive is forgiveness and peace with God. And Jesus, you lavish that upon us. You lavish love upon us. We become a people now who are, who are brothers and sisters, family and friends. And Lord Jesus, if, if following you cost us a job or following you cost us a friendship or a relationship, you've promised us to replace all of those a hundred times over. Our minds drift to Job. How was it that Job was able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, let that be our prayer as well. Lord Jesus, there may be family who don't want to spend time with us anymore because we're followers of Jesus, but around us in the church are brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, countless ones, Lord that become our Christian family. But God, the, the real point, would you show us where our value systems have gotten out of line or out of whack? God, would you help each one of us to be able to honestly say, all I ask of Jesus is forgiveness and a mission. Or give me a vision and a mission how I can serve you and impact the lives of others, loving them as you loved me. Father God, that's what we're called to be as your children. We'll serve one another and serve our community, loving you with all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to live in a way that honors him 
and shows his kingdom to others. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.